This is the New Song Church podcast. You're listening to a service from our church in Oklahoma City. Wherever you're at today, we hope this helps you to better know God and to practice the way of Jesus. Now here's the message. We're very honored tonight to have Pastor Willie George with us tonight. Uh, Pastor Willie George is someone I have known my entire life, and, uh, and I have been so privileged, and it's been such a privilege and such an honor. I can honestly say I think I had one of the most unique childhoods of any person I've ever known, and a big part of, of what I got to do and, and what I got to experience, uh, so much of that had to do with being able to sit under Pastor Willie George's leadership. I could go on and on. He, he pioneered basically modern-day children's ministry. He launched an incredible church. He launched an incredible youth ministry, had a kids' television show. Uh, he's had a ton to do with, with what is going on at New Song and, and helping uh, me with so much of the vision and the heart and I think the faith, but not just the faith to do certain things, but the, the understanding of how to take the steps necessary to walk big things out in faith. Uh, he's just been such a blessing to us and to so many. Um, and let me also say this. He has a podcast called Faith Roots that if you are looking for a really great way to get into the word every day, it's 15, 13 to 15 minutes daily of some of the most deep theologically made simple stuff you've ever heard in your life. So if you're, if you're not uh, checking out his podcast, I encourage you to get that and listen to that. And would you do me a great, well, uh, a great honor and do him a great honor by welcoming Pastor Willie George as he comes up right now. Thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you. You may be seated. Oh, man, what a cool place, Brian. Awesome. Man, this is just made for men, isn't it? Holy moly. And right here on the Chisholm Trail, I could go outside and eat some calf fries right now. <laughs> no, I can't either. I'd probably throw up. <laughs> I'm going to read a scripture tonight and just talk about it for a little bit. It's a weird scripture. And it comes out of kind of a weird book. It's from the book of Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes is just a little bit different than any of the other books of the Old Testament. And it says in Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. I, it, I, I'm one of those guys that I read scriptures, and then I don't think about what it's really saying. Just move on to the next verse and move on to the next verse. And, but when you stop and think about this verse, it's kind of a strange verse. Because when do you find stuff with your hand? I, I don't. I find stuff with my eyes. Most of the time we find stuff with our eyes, don't we? We reach out and grab with our eyes. And if you're finding something with your hand, it's because it's dark. And you're feeling now, I don't know about you, but at my house, it is a death penalty offense to turn on the light in the middle of the night. <laughs> and I go to bed every night with a big old glass of water, ice water. And I, I, sometimes my mouth gets dry, and I'll reach over and take a little sip out of my Yeti cup, and it's got a lid on it so it doesn't spill. And, and, but I have to find that cup with my hand. And in the middle of the night, I'm reaching over, and, and I've got to be real careful because I don't want to grab too forcefully or I'll hit it wrong and turn it over. So 
I reach over there and I finally find that cup and get it to my mouth and, and I think about don't dare make a sound and don't turn on the light because it is, if I wake my wife up and she is interrupted and her sleep is interrupted, I hear about it for not just the rest of the day, but for days. So I learned, don't turn on the light. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do. You may not realize this, but some of the biggest things you'll ever do in your life will be things that you will find with your hand. Because you will find many, many things that were not things that you would have chosen. They're not things that you saw. They're not things that you dreamed of. They're not things that were your idea of a career, your idea of where you're going to live, your idea of who your friends were going to be. You might not have picked a number of things that came in your life. And so that's why this scripture is so very important. It is because more than you realize, you find things with your hand. Joseph in the Bible was such a character. Joseph had a tremendous future, had great dreams of what he was going to do. He came from a family of prophets. His great-grandfather was a prophet named Abraham, had an amazing walk with God, had incredible faith with God, believed God for a son when he was 100 years old. God said, I'm giving you a son, and Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. Then Isaac also was a prophet. His own dad, Jacob, was a prophet. These guys were able to see what God was going to do with people, and they had supernatural things happen in their lives. And so he has this idea of becoming a leader for his whole clan. And it's not something that he chose for himself. It's something that God put into his heart because he dreamed it. And he dreamed he was in a wheat field binding shocks of wheat. And he and his brothers were all binding shocks of wheat. And as they bound their shocks of wheat and made them to stand up so that the wind could blow through them and dry out the wheat and make it ready to take to the threshing floor, everybody else's shock of wheat fell down and bowed to his. And he knew by that that he was going to be the leader of the family and that all of his brothers would bow to him. Now, they had a really crappy family dynamic <laughs> because Jacob married a woman he really didn't want to marry. Oh, I mean, he did marry her, but he really didn't want to. It was because she was the oldest sister, and the younger sister was just drop-dead gorgeous. And he saw her and cut a deal with the dad. I'll work for your daughter. I don't have any money to buy the dowry, but I'll work for her for seven years. And so they have a big wedding feast and they dance and they party and all this stuff. And somehow between when they went into the tent that night and the lights were out and the next morning, he didn't get the girl he thought he was getting. He got her ugly sister. The Bible very politely says about Leah, the oldest sister, that she was weak-eyed. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know of whatever, what scholars meant. Uh, I've never seen a proper explanation for that, but I would imagine 
if a woman is not so good looking, she probably could be said to be weak-eyed. Or maybe she's hard to look at. I don't know what that means. But that was Leah. Jacob protested, and he went to his, his father-in-law. And the father-in-law says, I forgot to tell you, we have a custom. The oldest girl has to be married first. Of course, you can marry Rachel. So he marries Rachel, and now he's in debt for 14 years. He gets both women early. He takes them in the beginning. We know that from the ages of the children, that he took both wives in rapid succession. And, uh, but he had to work for them. It was his take down and pay later. So he, he works 14 years. And these women, in an attempt to have children, give their maids to him. So now there's two more women in the mix. And he's having children by all four of these ladies. So this is Sister Wives 1. Whatever's on TV that's called Sister Wives today, that ain't one. Sister Wives 1 was Jacob with these four women. So you can imagine the, the terrible family dynamic with these 12 brothers and the insecurities with all of them. And, and, and listen... These are guys you didn't want to mess with. Two of them, when they found out that their sister had been raped, they tricked the whole village where the rapist lived into being circumcised. They said, we'll, we'll be family with you, only you got to be circumcised. And they knew something about this circumcision. These guys had the foreskin of their flesh cut away. All of them had the benefit of that happening when they were only eight days old. And they weren't walking anywhere then. And so... They didn't have any pain that they could remember. Now all these grown men, they can't move. And when they're incapacitated, Simeon and Levi went in and killed every last man in the village. They're bad men. And this is Joseph growing up with these guys, and they hated his guts. And they couldn't wait to get rid of him. And finally the time came when they were not anywhere near their father. And Joseph came, and they saw him. And they took him and threw him into a hole and bound him, and they were going to kill him. And then one of them speaks up, Judah. The Greek form of his name is Judas. It has some similarities, as we'll see later. But he says to the men, why should we kill our brother and not make some money? There's a caravan coming. Let's sell him as a slave. And so Joseph is taken by some traders down into Egypt, and he gets sold as a slave to the worst possible guy in Egypt. His name is Potiphar. He is called the captain of Pharaoh's guard. The commentators tell us that this literally means he's called chief of the butchers. He's the executioner. And he would cut people to ribbons this is a guy you didn't want to mess with. He was the enforcer for the most powerful man in the world. And this is who Joseph gets sold to. Now, when Joseph was back home, he did a whole lot of talking. Talked all the time. Every time he had a dream, he went and told it to his brothers. It didn't go over very well. Talking doesn't work in Egypt. Let me tell you why because they don't understand Hebrew. And so he can talk all he wants to, but it doesn't matter because they don't get it. So there's only one language 
that he can use with which to communicate. And it is the language of the hand. And so we read in Genesis 39, verses 2, 3, and 4, the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now you listen to me carefully. You become prosperous inwardly before it ever happens on the outside. Your attitude always precedes your circumstance. Always. And so Joseph began to act like a prosperous man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian, and his master saw, not heard, because Joseph talking wouldn't have meant anything, but his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. In other words, everything that Joseph did worked, and everything that he put his hand on, God blessed. And he was able to fix things. He was able to solve problems. He was able to do things efficiently. He had a knack for seeing his way through things that other people were tripped up by. And the scripture says that Joseph found grace in Potiphar's sight and he served him and he made him overseer over his house and all that he had he put into his hand. The world doesn't think like this. The world doesn't want to serve. The world wants to be served. The world wants to make money. The world wants to get other people's money. Now, I don't know if you've discovered this. Maybe some of you have figured it out by now. You look old enough to figure, at least some of you. But people don't get up in the morning thinking of all the ways they can give you their money. And unfortunately, you go to church, and a lot of people who preach about money preach about trusting God for money and believing God for money. And somebody I didn't even know walked in and gave me $50. You know, I've heard preachers say that a lot. Heard it over and over and over again. And I don't think it's true. And I'll tell you why I don't think it's true. Because just because you didn't know that person doesn't mean they didn't know you. And that person heard you preach a sermon, they were blessed by it, and they wanted to give you something. There was a relationship there. Some businessman hears that, and he thinks if he has faith, then people that he doesn't know or have any kind of relationship at all are going to come give him a bunch of money, and it never happens. And they walk away discouraged because they think, I must not have faith. But that's not how money flows. Money flows through an exchange. And we serve in order to get money. And the world tells you that if you become a servant, people are going to take advantage of you. But that's not true. The Bible says Joseph became the head Fred in the household because he served his master. He looked for ways to do the job right. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Josh introduced me and said something about my kids' ministry and my TV show, Gospel Bill, and I had a bus ministry where I ran buses. And I, I, I started out really working with kids in the bus ministry. 
and I really didn't want to. Kids ministry was not what I chose. In fact, I thought if you worked with kids, it's because you were a reject. You couldn't cut it anywhere else. That's what I thought. I didn't want to be seen with kids. I, now, don't get me wrong. I would witness. I remember 17 years old taking to the police station downtown Fort Worth because I'm out preaching in front of the cellar nightclub and witnessing to people. Me and some other friends of mine, we went down there one night and we're talking to people about Jesus. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I led 30 people to Christ the first six months I was saved. I mean, it was unreal how many people I had come to church with me. But kids, man. I remember one Sunday morning, our church had started a bus ministry, and my uncle was a pastor, and he got up and he made an announcement. He said, I need one of you men to go back to the children's church and corral a couple of little boys who rode the bus today. They're giving the teacher fits, and, and they need a man back there to kind of take charge. So I didn't want to do that, but he made the announcement and was looking right at me, and I knew he didn't mean I need one of you men. It means I need Willie to go. So I got up, and I sent him back a little signal one Sunday. I ain't going to get stuck with those kids. Y'all think you're going to stick me back there with those kids. It ain't going to happen. I want to do it one Sunday. So I walked back there about half ticked off that I had to go do that with the kids. And I walked in the room, looked across the room, and there they were, two little Mexican boys that had ridden the bus that day. And I knew who they were. First time they'd ever been to church. And one of them had another one in the headlock. And so I sat down between them and separated them. And I started listening to the lesson. Oh, my God, it was bad. It was so bad that lady couldn't teach her way out of a paper sack. And she was not the kind of person who needed to be talking to unchurched kids. She was syrupy, icky, sweet. Boys and girls, and we love Jesus, don't we? And I'm thinking, ah, that ain't going to go over with these guys. And, you know, it was so bad. In 15 minutes, I had both of them in a headlock, and I was grinding on them, man. I mean, it was bad. And as I sat there and thought about that class, I thought, will these kids ever come back to this church? Will they ever come back? I don't think they will. If something doesn't change, these guys are never going to come to Christ. I wouldn't come to this church if I was 10 years old because I identified with them. I didn't grow up in church. I'm just like them. I didn't know how to behave. My parents did not make me go. I was there because I decided to go with my grandmother. I was there by invitation, not by commandment. And so I went to the pastor and I said, can I have all the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade kids? I want to teach them. He said, let us pray about it. 30 minutes later, he called me back and said, you can have them. And so I thought, I got to do something different than what they do in there. So I thought, man, I got to make it exciting. So I went and got me a baggie. We call them Ziploc bags today, but in the early days, it's baggies. So I went and got me a baggie and some Kairos food syrup and some red food coloring and a newspaper and some white spray paint and some masking tape. I took that baggie and crinkled up all that newspaper and laid the baggie in the middle of it, filled it with Kairos syrup, the red food coloring, and I had me a big old pouch of blood. And then I made a lamb out of all that newspaper and spray painted the whole thing white. And I came back in the next Sunday morning and I said, I want to talk to you about the Lamb of God and how Jesus came to die for us. 
And I preached a little bit about how Jesus went to the cross, and I lifted up that lamb. I'd been holding him, rocking him back forth. Then we laid him down, and I took out a big old frog sticking knife, and I cut that lamb right in the gut. <laughs> and that blood went everywhere. <laughs> and all those little guys on the back row, man, I like this. <laughs> and that's how I started teaching. I didn't know we weren't supposed to do that. I had the bloodiest children's church in North America, man. I was blowing things up and calling fire down from heaven. I did Samson and Delilah. I found a styrofoam wig head and I painted it flesh colored, put some marbles in the eyes, had a wig on it and talked about how Delilah talked Samson into giving up his hair. I ripped that wig off. And then I talked about how they took him and he lost all of his strength because his hair being long was what made him strong. He had compromised because he hung around with the wrong kind of people. So they took him and they put out his eyes. I took a propane torch and turned it on. <laughs> I had a spoon and I bent it and made it look like an eye popping tool, whatever one of them looks like. And I heated up the cup of that spoon it was red hot and I stuck it behind those marble and popped that thing out on the floor. <laughs> oh my God. And the little girls, they kind of got shook up, but the boys, they loved it, man. <laughs> it wasn't long before every chair in the room was full of kids. I had 300 kids in my children's church. We did the most amazing things in children's church. And I learned how to preach with objects in my hand. I started reading Jesus' sermons differently. I started seeing that when he talked about sowing seeds, that he was in a wheat field with seeds in his hand. He didn't preach with nothing. He always had something in his hand. He was using things that people could see and relate to. I started reading the scriptures and seeing that all through the Old Testament, it says that God is like a rock or that God has wings and he covers us with his feathers. I started seeing the, the picture of God is so concrete. You can wrap your mind around how God communicates because he uses visual things. started realizing how much of scripture is visual. And so... I started teaching like that, and it opened up doors for me. I got invited to do the kids' ministry at Kenneth Hagin's camp meeting in 1978. I had no idea what was about to come. I went in there that first night. There were 1,500 kids, ages 3 to 12, in one room. My life was in danger. 1,500 kids, I had to keep their attention. I did that week. The next year, I did it again. The Holy Spirit said, tonight, I'm going to heal every kid in the room. But you're going to have to preach a sermon you've never preached before. And I said, Lord, what is it? I kept waiting for words, and I didn't hear words. I saw an image. I saw the whip that they used to beat Jesus back. And I said, Lord, I don't have one of them, but I can get it. And I ran down to the boot shop about three or four miles away, went in. I said, I need some long leather straps. Where do you go? He showed me. I said, I want a whole handful of them. And then I took them back and tied it together and made a handle. I told my wife, I said, here's some fake blood. 
I'm going to bring a little boy up on the stage tonight. You're going to be behind the curtain. Nobody needs to see you. you got that fake blood. I'll pay the kid. He'll let you do this. So he's going to come up, and I want you to put stripes all over his back like he's had the daylights beat out of him. I'm going to beat a chair back behind that curtain, and there'll be a microphone laying in it, and it's going to sound like I'm tearing the kid's back off. And I'm going to talk about how they beat Jesus. And so I preached, and I beat for a while, and then I preached, and I beat for a while. And finally, I brought that little boy out and turned him around. And the whole crowd, 1,500 kids, they just looked. They're blown away. And I told kids, Jesus was beaten so we could be healed. Who wants to be healed tonight? Who needs to be healed? I remember what the Holy Spirit said. I'm going to heal every kid in the room that needs healing. There were about 60 kids out of the 1,500, which is remarkable to me. Out of 1,500 kids, you'd think that way more than 60 would come forward, but about 60 kids came forward. And so I said, who, who wants to be healed? And I had some little helpers who were in my children's church who happened to be there, and I said, guys, pray for some of these kids. I can't get to all of them that quick. And I kept seeing out of the corner of my eye some boys in my children's church saying, come over here, come over here. And I said, what is it? And they pointed this little red-haired, freckle-faced girl, eight years old. They said, she's deaf, and they were tickle pink. I thought, look at these kids. They know God's going to heal her. They weren't scared. They weren't shook up. They were delighted. They were thrilled. They found a deaf girl. I went over and put my fingers in her ears. I never prayed for a deaf kid before. Never prayed for a deaf anything. I didn't know what you prayed for. What if her eardrums are not there? What if it's a deaf spirit? I read about them in the Gospels. What if she does have all the equipment, but it just doesn't work and it needs to be healed? I don't know. I prayed for everything. I prayed for God to create new ears. I prayed against deaf spirits. I prayed against the whole thing. She got scared, but she told me through her brother who interpreted, my ears are popping right now. I said, well, you can go sit down, but you're going to hear tonight. She sat down in her chair. It was time for me to go do something else. I started doing a puppet show. My wife was the straight person out front, you know, having the kids race me at the memory verse, and I was the puppet that was doing the memory verse. And as I came out from behind the stage 10 minutes later, the little girl's parents were in the room. See, when she went back to sit down, God opened up her ears. She told her brother in sign language, I can hear. He told one of my helpers, who was walking up down the hall or the aisle, that guy happened to tell one of the ushers who'd come up from the main floor of the camp meeting who had a radio, he radioed down to the main floor to the main speaker. His usher told him, the late year old girl, just healed. All that happened 10 minutes time. The whole camp meeting stood up when the leader of the camp meeting told the people what happened. The parents, as you can well imagine, had to see this. They jumped up and ran upstairs. The photographer and the editor of the ministry's magazine also jumped up. And I was behind a puppet stage the whole time. I didn't know any of this had happened. I came out from behind that puppet stage, and there they were. And that little girl was learning how to talk. They were teaching her words right there on the spot. And all those kids got to see God do that. Listen to me. That night after the service... I was the man of God. Before the service, I was just a babysitter. They loved me for it. 
but I was still just a babysitter. But that changed my life and ministry. Now, what I want you to see is this. I didn't think that that was God's path for me. I wanted to be a pastor. I saw myself teaching grown-ups. I saw myself pastoring a church. The reason I did the kids thing is because somebody had to do it, and I didn't have anything else to do at the time, so my hand in the darkness reached out and found it. And it wasn't what I wanted, but it's where God led me. But God blessed it because I did it with all my might. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all your might. I flew through the airport years ago in Salt Lake City. I walked through this breezeway between terminals, all the gates over here in one big concourse and over here another one. But in between, there was a huge shoeshine parlor. There are four or five guys working, and there are pictures everywhere of movie stars, professional athletes, people I recognized, politicians. And I'm standing there looking at this, and I'm seeing all of these are inscribed to one man. So there's several guys shining shoes. I don't want to talk to the rest of them. I want the guy. Who is this guy? And I waited my turn till he was available. And I said, tell me about these pictures. He said, I know all these people. I said, you know all these people. He said, at one time or another, they've flown through the airport. And I shined their shoes. And they told me, Butch, we've never had shoes shine like this. Can I send you my shoes? Yeah, Butch said. He said, so I shine way more shoes at home than I shine here because these movie stars and these politicians and these NFL players and NBA players, they send me boxes of shoes and I shine them up and I send them back home. Here's this guy making a killing, shining shoes. I promise you it wasn't what he wanted to do as a young man, but it was something that opened up to him probably when he was a teenager in a time of darkness when he needed money and there was nowhere else to go. And so he said, well, I'll shine shoes. And so he starts shining shoes. And it was what his hand found to do. But he did it with all his might. When you put your hand on something, it deserves everything you can give it. Can I tell you why you do it with all your might? Because you are not an ordinary person. You're not an ordinary human being. You are in a kingdom. And you do not work for the name on your paycheck. You work for the one who has eyes of fire and hair like wool and a sword that comes out of his mouth. You work for one who can change worlds. He is able to raise the dead. He's able to cause the blind to see. That's who you work for. And you do your work as unto him and not to men. 
And when you find it hard to go to work because your boss is a jerk, you realize that you're really not working for him anyway. You're working for an unseen boss who sees everything that you do. And you cannot be cheated. You cannot be stolen from. You cannot be lied about because you are working for him. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all of thy might. Joseph works for Potiphar. It may seem like it's a dead-end job, but something's going on. He gets thrown into that pit when he's 17 years old. But 13 years later, when he's 30, and now he's in prison because he's been treated unfairly again, Potiphar's wife makes an accusation against him that he had made sexual advances against her. And here he is now in a terrible situation. But he never lets it stop him. He kept up the law of the hand even when he was in prison. And so the man who was in charge of the prison turns everything in the prison over to Joseph. One day, two strangers show up in the prison. They come from the palace. God wanted Joseph to be in the palace. Joseph knew he was supposed to be in the palace. But there's no human connection to put Joseph in the palace. So God brings the palace to Joseph. So two guys come into the prison who had been working the day before in the palace. One of them was Pharaoh's cupbearer and the other was his baker. Now scholars tell us there was a plot to assassinate the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh didn't know which of his men were guilty. So he threw them both into prison. Didn't kill them, but he threw them both into prison while he did an investigation. And while they were in prison, they both have dreams. Now here's what's fascinating about Joseph. You would think that Joseph would be so crushed by all of his misfortune, so bitter that there's nothing of God flowing in him at all, but you'd be wrong. Because he didn't let it eat on him. Listen to me. I've had some pretty nasty things done to me over my years. I, I grew up in a home where some horrible things were done to me. But you know what I learned? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people have said. It doesn't matter what employers have done. It doesn't matter what people have done to throw a roadblock in your path because I'm working for God and he's the one that's paying my way. So that kept Joseph in a place where he could always be in a flow. He wasn't poisoned with bitterness. And he looked at these men. Had he been troubled himself, he would never have seen the trouble in them. Listen to me, you got to live so that when other people are burdened, you can spot it because that's when you can minister to them. When people are on top of the world, it's hard to talk to them. But when they're down in the dumps, 
they're all ears. And Joseph spotted these two, said, tell me what's wrong. They said, we've had dreams, and we don't know what they mean. He said, tell them to me. Joseph correctly interpreted two dreams. One was good, one was bad. One guy, he said, you will be back on the job in three days doing what you used to do for Pharaoh. The other guy heard that interpretation and said, oh boy, what's mine? Here's what I dreamed. Joseph looked at him, and this may not seem like a big thing, but it's huge. Joseph looked at him and he said, three days from now, Pharaoh's going to cut your head off. And then he's going to nail you up on a wall till the birds come and pick your body apart. Ooh, that's pretty rough. Three days later, both dreams came to pass. Now, Joseph told the one guy, when you go back to work for Pharaoh, tell him about me. Can I tell you this? You don't get to pick the person who's going to be used by God to put you over the top. And you don't get to pick the timing. God picks that. And I'm telling you, it doesn't always come as quickly as you think it would or should. Sometimes it takes a little longer. Two full years pass. Pharaoh has two dreams. It's driving him nuts. They're both from God. <coughs> There's not a man in Egypt, not a wise man anywhere in Egypt who can interpret a dream. He's going through the whole palace asking, tell me what the dream means. Nobody knows. Finally, the butler speaks up and says, Pharaoh, I remember two years back, there's this Hebrew. There's this Hebrew. He's in the dungeon. And he basically runs the dungeon. <clears throat> and this Hebrew can interpret dreams. So they call Joseph to come into Pharaoh's presence. And before he goes into the presence of Pharaoh, he shaves his beard. He puts on different clothes. Then he goes in and stands before the king. And he begins to speak. Pharaoh tells the dream. And bold as a lion, Joseph said, you've had two dreams, but they both mean the same thing. You saw seven fat cows come out of the Nile, eaten up by seven skinny, sick cows. That means we're going to have seven years of amazing harvest. You saw seven ears of corn that were big and fat and full. They were followed by seven blighted ears of corn. That is another part of the dream. Same thing. Seven good years, seven bad years. He interpreted the dream of Pharaoh correctly. Joseph had that ability back in Canaan. Before he ever got thrown into the prison, he knew what dreams meant. That by itself was not enough to take him where he needed to go. The best thing he could have hoped for on interpreting that dream is Pharaoh says, thank you. Now let this man go. But there were four other things that Joseph picked up while he was in that dungeon and while he worked for Potiphar. Four things that he learned and made a part of his skill set. And they all involved the hand. He had to work to do these and he practiced the law of the hand. And let me tell you what they were. 
Number one, he learned to speak Egyptian. If you're going to be a ruler in Egypt, you got to know the language. If you're going to reach people, you got to know who you're going to talk to. If you're going to be a children's worker, you got to know what kids are like. You got to know that little boys like lambs getting stabbed in the gut and they bleed. <laughs> you got to know your audience. You got to know how to communicate with teenagers if you're going to communicate with teenagers. Some people are so brain dead, they don't even know their audience isn't paying the least bit of attention. So you got to speak the language. You got to speak the language. My dad was a professional rodeo cowboy. He was one of the best salesmen in the Western industry that ever was. And the reason is because my dad understood cowboys and he knew what they needed. He knew how they liked their hats shaped. He could shape a cowboy hat just exactly right. He knew because when they say I went like this, he understood the language. He knew what kind of gear cowboys would buy. He knew how to design bridles for leather companies. He would show them this is what they want. And those things would sell like crazy. There's still bits used today that my dad helped introduce to the Western industry because he spoke the language. You got to speak the language. Joseph did. Number two, you have to get the culture. When it says that Joseph shaved his beard and put on new clothes, he went before Pharaoh looking like an Egyptian, not a Hebrew. Hebrews wore beards and the Egyptians hated it. There was racial animosity between the two groups. You wouldn't find a Hebrew shaving his face and you wouldn't find an Egyptian wearing a beard. Since he's in Egypt, he's gonna shave his beard. And so he goes in looking like an Egyptian. Nine years later, his own family comes to the palace to buy wheat from him. And he speaks Egyptian so fluently, they don't, take, they don't detect a shred of a Hebrew accent. And he looks so much like a, an Egyptian, they don't even know it's their brother. So he got it. What did he do for Potiphar? He managed the food. What did he do in the prison? He managed the food. So what does Joseph know? He knows food consumption rates. He knows what it takes to run a household. He knows what it takes to run a prison. So when he speaks to the Pharaoh and says, let Pharaoh seek out a man and put him in charge, Joseph learned about administration and food consumption. Two different things. And he said, we're not going to fix this because we just know it's coming. We've got to have a system and we've got to put people in charge of warehouses and put the food back. But this is what he said. We've got to put back 20% of the food. When Pharaoh heard that, he knows this is a doggone expert. Anybody who knows the exact rate of what needs to be put back just being presented with these things. And this is the other thing Pharaoh knows. I know this guy is real because he interpreted a man's dream and said in three days you'll be dead 
He's not a flatterer. Pharaoh put him in charge of all the grain in Egypt. Six times in Genesis 39, it talks about the hand of Joseph, the hand of Joseph, the hand of Joseph. And it's always about the work, the work, the work. But six is not God's number. That's man's number. That's man doing everything he can do by himself. You want to look at God working? You look for the number seven. And the seventh time the hand of Joseph is mentioned in this story is in Genesis 41 when Pharaoh reaches down and pulls his ring off his own finger and grabs the hand of Joseph and puts the seal of Egyptian authority on the finger of this young Hebrew and says, you're in charge. Wow. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter what field you're in. Doesn't matter what your education is. Doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. Doesn't matter how educated you are. Doesn't matter what's happened in your family in the past. Doesn't matter. Because when the law of the hand works, it is a spiritual law. And let me tell you something about a spiritual law. Nothing can stop a spiritual law. Nothing can stop a spiritual law. There's no demon in the atmosphere who can stop a spiritual law from working. You don't even have to take authority over the devil and tell him he can't touch your stuff. When you practice spiritual law, the devil can't do a thing in the world about it. Ladies and no, no, ladies in here, gentlemen. I don't know about you, but I know I'm in charge. There's nobody that can stop me but me because God has given me the law of the hand. Thank you very much for letting me come. Thanks again for listening. For more information on our church or for more resources to help you grow in your faith, Go to newsongpeople.com or download our app by searching for New Song Church OKC in the App Store.